You know, in the book of uh, Jonah, as uh, God sent Jonah to Nineveh, which was a, an evil nation, uh, at the end of the book, God says, there, you know, there are a couple hundred thousand people down there that don't know their right hand from their left. And do you not want me to have mercy on them? And then God says this, he says, not to mention all the cattle and other livestock, you know, which means God does care about animal life too, but the people. And, and, and so to, to have a heart of compassion for what's happening in Ukraine and to pray for peace there is just a real significant and important thing. All right, so uh, what type of day is this today? Anybody remember? This is a great day, right? <laughs> Okay, so let's hear that, Archangelus. This is a great day. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the phrase that you can repeat it. God's going to do great things in me and through me today. God's going to do great things in me and through me today. This will be a day of victory and breakthrough. Okay, so just reach out with your heart and, and attach faith to that. God has something for you today. God wants to speak to your heart today. He wants to lead, lead each one of us into greater freedom, greater repentance, greater change in our lives, and ultimately just deeper and deeper intimacy with him. So last week and this week, we're talking about giving and about finances overall. And um, I shared last week that giving is just a part of the overall perspective that the Bible teaches us on possessions, money, finances. And just, just to review a few of the other, very quickly, a few of the other principles, one of them is real simple. It is this, work hard. Get a job, show up on time, show up early, and work hard. Don't quit because your boss is mean to you. Don't quit because you're frustrated. Work hard and keep working hard. If you, if you are a boss, work hard and treat your people well. If you're an entrepreneur, work hard and ultimately trust God. Second point is this, spend wisely. You know, one of the things I think we need to do is teach our children how to resist advertising. Yeah, and you know what? You and I need to know how to resist advertising too. They make everything look so good, but we need to spend wisely. You have a budget, resist impulse buying, and live within your means. Live within your means, and finally, trust God, all right? Third thing is this, save regularly. And when we say save, don't save for protection. Money cannot protect you. The Bible says that wealth can sprout wings and fly away at a second's notice. So it doesn't give you security and safety. Don't save for protection. Do save for provision. The Bible teaches that. You know there are needs out there. You need a new car. Well, start saving for that new car. Don't wait till you get to that point and then panic. You know, think ahead. Save, save regularly. Um, give generously. You know, give to honor God. And really, this is not number four. I would say this is number one, but I didn't want to say it first. <laughs> Give generously. And when you develop a generous lifestyle, there's something that happens in your heart. Give to honor God and give first. We're going to talk about that later. And by the way, trust God with that. 
Fifth point is be content. Be content with what you have. Don't complain. Don't, don't, don't lie awake at night dreaming you won the lottery. Be content with what you You know, most people that win the lottery go bankrupt you know, within a couple of years anyway because the problem is how do you handle money? It's not how much you have. And uh, that's not to say that more isn't a good thing, but be content. Take the raise if you can get it. Ask for the raise. Take the promotion. Take the new job if, if it's a good job and you're offered it. But be content, which means don't, don't be driven by money. And again, trust God. And then the last point, six, is this, in case you haven't gotten it yet. Trust God. Okay, God's our provider. He says, I'll provide everything you need. And, and that, that's just not like just a free-flowing promise that anybody out there can say, oh, yeah, I've wasted all my money. I've spent, you know, I've, I've quit three jobs in the last two years, and now I need money, and oh God, you said you'd provide all I need. No, what I need to do if I'm in that condition is change my lifestyle. I need a new mindset about money, and I need to work myself into a new, a whole new financial outlook and system as, as to how money operates. So I would not say in that case, well, just give 10%, and then God's going to open the windows of heaven. No, there's a a bigger picture here as to our attitude and our mindset about possessions. That's why I wanted to just run over these points so that no one goes away thinking that I'm saying something else. Now, last week I talked about the temple and the church. And in the Old Testament, there was a temple. It was a physical building, and God's presence dwelt in that building physically. There was a physical manifestation of God's presence in the temple. It was in Jerusalem tabernacle prior to that, but we'll just stick with the temple. Their giving was focused on maintaining temple worship. But what we need to understand about the temple is that not only was it the center of worship and the place that a a Jew would identify at a heart level with their spirituality, it was also a place that God wanted to use to reach the world. That's why the Bible uh, says that God said, I want my house to be a house of prayer for the nations. He cares about the nations. He wants them to come to Jesus. And the day will come when the nations of of this earth will be the nations of our God, nations of Jesus Christ, the King. But he cares about the nations. And in the Old Testament, he cared about the nations. Now, in the New Testament, uh, the the temple's gone. That was was an, an old covenant relationship that they had with God. But in the New Testament, we have the church. Now, the church is not the equivalent of the temple. The, church, the temple was located in one specific spot in the world. God's presence was there. God's heart to reach the world was there and emanated from that spot. But the church is worldwide. There, there are believers in Christ now all around the globe So God's intent from the temple is coming true right now, his intent to reach the nations. And whereas in the Old Testament era, in that that covenant, they were told to pray for the nations, in this covenant, you know what we're told to do? We're told to go to the nations. That doesn't mean we don't pray for them, but we go to the nations now. That's what Jesus said. Go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey everything I've taught you. And then he said, lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of this age. 
And so there are these, even though the church is not the temple, there are these parallels between what the church does and what the temple does. The lo- and, and by church, I do mean a local church. New Testament is filled with letters written to specific local churches in cities. And so the idea that someone might have that, um, yeah, I just go to a different church every weekend because they're all Christians and we're all part of the body of Christ. And, and, and it's true that every person that is a believer anywhere in the world is part of the body of Christ. But it's also true that the New Testament conceives of a local church and talks about a local group of believers where you're close enough together and you share enough of the same values and in this day and age, theology, values, mission, that you want to give your heart to that place. And so you go there. That, that's where your identity is, is, is kind of rooted. I mean, it's rooted in Christ. But you identify with that church body as, 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 as a place where you come to worship and where you come to learn and grow and where your family is blessed. And so there are these parallels, even though they're not exact, even though it's not an exact representation of the temple. Now, from last week, I raised the question about tithing, and I want to I address that right now, okay? Uh, how many of you have heard of tithing before? Okay. Uh, so am I robbing God if I don't tithe? That's the question. Is tithing a law today? It, well, okay, that was a rhetorical question because <laughs> we're going to have a fist fight here pretty soon among you. Uh, some would say yes, some would say no. Um, I'll tell you what I think here in a moment. But... Um, where was I? <laughs> okay, is it a law the same as, you know, don't commit adultery? Okay, if you commit adultery, we know you, you know, I, that, that person is violating God's law for today. He's violating the way God designed him to be. And, but is tithing, does tithing fit into the same category? And here's what I want to say first. The first place, well, first of all, who knows what a tithe is? Okay, a lot of times people think tithing is giving. But tithe, the word tithe means one-tenth. It means 10%. And so tithing is giving 10% of your income. And the first place, uh, or of what you have, the first place we find tithing mentioned in the Bible is uh, in Genesis. Prior to Moses uh, being even a gleam in his father's eye, Prior to the law, Abraham encountered this guy named Melchizedek. He was the king of Salem, king of peace, and he was called a priest of the Most High God. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything he had. Abraham tithed to this man that was, in a mystery, a priest of the Most High God. Book of Hebrews uses Melchizedek as kind of like a type of Christ, in fact. But that's the first place we see tithing. And then we see tithing again when, uh, when God delivers the Israelites out of Egypt and he gives Moses the law. Moses writes the first five books of the, of the Old Testament. And in that, they are establishing the Jewish, Jewishness as how, how they relate to God, how they relate to Yahweh. 
That's how he's revealed himself to them. Now, the great I am, that's what Yahweh means. The self-existent God, the one God, the most high God. And so those first five books govern their relationship with the Lord, but it also sets up a governmental structure for the nation of Israel. And so the nation of Israel was a theocracy. That means the religion and the government were one and the same. And in that theocracy, God commanded them to take one-tenth of all their income throughout the year and to give it to the support of the temple. And so one-tenth went to support the temple, the priesthood. Uh, it, was a, it was a real big operation. And so the whole nation was required to give one-tenth. Now, what most of us don't know is they were also required to give a second-tenth, and that was for the festivals. They had several festivals throughout the year, half a dozen festivals like Pentecost and Passover and the Festival of Booths and things like that, where all the Jews would come to the center and, and have a big celebration in God's presence. Tells you something about God, doesn't it? Does he want a, like dour, serious, sour-faced worship? I don't think so. He, he planned all these parties, all these big festivals, and they were to fund those festivals by giving 10% of their income. Now, there was provision made for those that lived too far away to get there or they didn't have the means to get there and what they should do and how they should celebrate that festival. And it's not quite as clear as what the Bible says about that tenth that went to the temple to support the temple ministry, but it is there. Now, the third tithe they gave, every three years, they were instructed to give 10% of their income for the poor for the widows, orphans, and others that were just poverty-stricken. And um, so, so it's pretty instructive when you start thinking about it like that. 23% total, uh, roughly that, would be what they, what they would be required to tithe every year. So what can we conclude from this? Well, looking at this as a 23% offering, which was part of the law in the Old Testament, and you look at the fact that most all of it was centered around the temple and temple worship and the whole temple worship system, which included the festivals, then I look at what the Bible says about the, about the old covenant, and in Hebrews, it very clearly talks about the abolishment of the old covenant and conclude that tithing is not a law today. That it is not something that is that God's saying, okay, love your wife. No, don't go with that other woman and also give 10%. Now, tithing is a biblical precedent. If you're looking for a biblical, if you're saying, well, how should I give? I'm going to look at the Bible. Well, you look at the Bible and you see Abraham tithing to Melchizedek. Obviously, that was something that, that preceded the law. And for some reason, that, that's how Abraham gave to Isaac or to Melchizedek. So if I want a precedent that I'm looking for, there's a precedent. That's how I look at it. That's what we do. We tithe. We give 10%. We give 10% to the church. But then we give other money to missionaries out there and, and friends that we have and other ministries and supporting a child that you know, needs help and that sort of thing. 
But that's, that's just what I've concluded. As I've looked at it, I've said, okay, what's a biblical illustration? That's a biblical illustration. But it's not a law. Okay, it's not a law. And it's important we recognize that. Now, some would say that in 11, Luke eleven forty two. in fact, a good friend of mine just brought this verse up to me the other day. That's what reminded me of it. So thank you. He was, he was advocating for tithing. That's why I'm saying let's not all start shouting out what we believe here because I don't want to have any, any um, fisticuffs or anything break out. Here's what Jesus said. He said, woe to you Pharisees because you tithe of your mint, rue, and other kinds of garden herbs. What he's saying is you are so picky about tithing that if you pick 10 leaves off a mint plant, you give one of them to God. And he's, so they're very, very particular about that. But then it goes on to say, but you neglect justice and the love of God. And then it goes on to say, so what they were doing, they didn't have the heart of God. If they had the heart of God, justice and the love of, and the love of God and the love of people, mercy, uh, in, in other, another, trans, another gospel says mercy, you reject mercy, then they would have had a heart of mercy and compassion and then their tithing would have probably meant something. But he says this, he said, you should have practiced the latter, meaning the love and the mercy and the kindness and the, and the, and the justice, without leaving the former undone. So here, to these Pharisees, he is endorsing tithing. But what you gotta remember is he's speaking to people who are still under the old covenant. And here's the thing, the moment Jesus was born, the new covenant came, the, new, the kingdom came, because Jesus is the king, and when you have the king, you have the kingdom. And so the new age came the moment Jesus was born. But, and, and you know, we live in this overlap period of the old age and the new age, but just thinking of the covenant right now, there was an overlap period of that old covenant when it's gonna come to an end, but with Jesus here, there was this overlap period of his lifetime here on earth. And so he's speaking to people who are still responsible to fulfill the old covenant. In like manner, there was a case where Jesus healed a leper. He says to that leper, he says, go to the priest, show yourself, and make the appropriate offering. Because they had regulations. If a leper was healed, they go to the priest, and then there was a blood offering that was given that reintroduced them to the worship community. Because if you had leprosy, you couldn't come into the temple. Now, we would not say, based on that, that he was endorsing blood sacrifices today. And I don't think we should say either that, that he was endorsing tithing as a law for today. Now, let's look at what the Bible does, New Testament does say about giving and, and just look at some principles. And I believe this, that although the outworking of these principles might be different in each age, in each, under these two different covenants, the principles should be the same. So I'm gonna give you three main principles that you would find in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the Old Testament era, that old covenant, they didn't have new hearts. In fact, in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah both, the, the Bible says, God says to them, I'm gonna write my law on your hearts. I'm gonna give you new hearts. Take out that stony heart and I'm gonna give you a real heart that can connect with me. And so to the Old Testament people under that covenant, they had to have an external law to govern their behavior. 
because their hearts were not reborn. And now in this new covenant where we have reborn hearts, the external law is not the thing that should drive us. And there's still moral laws and there's still things like that that are right, the difference between right and wrong based upon how God created us to be. But here's what we see. The first principle would be this. My giving should be sacrificial. You see an illustration of that in first, 2 Corinthians 8, 2 and 4, those verses. Let's read those. He's speaking of the Macedonians, Macedonian Christians, and their compassion for the Christians in Jerusalem and Judea. They were facing a great famine and, um, and starvation. And here's, here's what it says. In the midst of a very severe trial, see, the Macedonians themselves are facing real hardship, persecution and, and other things that are really difficult. He says, their overflowing joy... Uh, Say overflowing joy with me, okay? Overflowing joy. And their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Say that with me, rich generosity. For I testified that they gave as much as they were able. Who could ask for more than that? You know, give as much as you're able, but look at the next phrase. And even beyond their ability. Say that, beyond their ability beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Now, what would move their hearts to give beyond their ability? I mean, beyond their ability most certainly moves into the realm of a change of lifestyle, if nothing else. And I would say, when we say sacrifice, that doesn't mean, boy, I'd, I'd much rather keep this $100 or $200. Boy, I'd really like to keep that, but I'm going to sacrifice. So I'm going to give it. That's not necessarily a sacrifice. It might be. For many people, it might be a sacrifice, but not necessarily. A sacrifice is when I give up something that I want or something that's important to me for the greater good. I give up something I want or something that's important to me for the welfare of others or even for my own future. You would call that a sacrifice as well. And so sacrifice doesn't mean, boy, I'd rather not give anything, but I guess I'll give this, and that's a sacrifice because I don't want to give anything. If that's the case, then don't give anything. But certainly examine your heart and, and, and examine what's in your heart. If that's, if that's how a person would feel, that's what we should do. Now, he goes on and he says this. Well, sacrifice. I, 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 wanna, I don't want to move on yet. Um, you know, there are people in this room right now that could be driving brand new cars every year, but they don't because they sacrifice that in order to give. They sacrifice that in order to be a part of what God's doing. And notice these Macedonian believers because they, their hearts were in sync with the heart of God. And so they, they hear about the people suffering in Jerusalem. They want to give. They want to say, well, how, you know, how much can we give? Well, okay, we can give, we can give more than that. Let's give more. Let's, 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 let's make this hurt. And there's almost, I think the difficulty comes in, in expressing a, a truth like this with someone 
that has an abundant, abundant resources, and they give abundantly. And uh, I, I'm not sure what to say about that, because I'm, I'm I, you know, like when, when God's blessed somebody with abundance, and they are giving more than, you know, than, um, than you would expect even. Like, it would be one thing for a wealthy person to give 10% and say, okay, I'm giving 10%, I'm fulfilling my duty. But, you know, some people that, that have resources give 20 or 25 or 30%. And what I'm about to say, what I'm saying right now is, for that person, I don't know how this applies to them, okay? But sacrifice means I'm giving something up. Does that make sense? Sacrifice means that if it's not impacting my life in some way, then is it really a sacrifice? And for most of us, that, that applies pretty clearly. But the Old Testament principle, 23%, doggone it, that was a sacrifice. That was a lot. And King David, on one, one occasion, wanted to give an offering, and there was a man there, a guy named Aruna. He had oxen, he had wood. He said, here, I'll give you my oxen and my wood. You make the offering with them. And you know what David said? He said, I cannot, get, I cannot give the Lord an offering that doesn't cost me something. And so it's a sacrifice. It costs us when we give. But the mission is so great and so important that it's well worth the sacrifice. And when my heart flows with the heart of God, then that's why in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, he doesn't say each of you should give 10% to this cause. He says... Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Well, that doesn't, like if I would say, well, I can't give this cheerfully, well, then don't give it, because that's a heart issue. You see, and get your heart, get, get, I need to get my heart right before God if that's how I'm thinking. And if anybody here heard me say 10% is not a, be, a law binding thing on us today, if you went whoopee, <laughs> then you got to search your heart. I'm just going to say it straight. There's something wrong with your heart regarding money. If, if, that's, if that's your attitude, there's not a contentment there. There's not a trust in God there. It's like whatever you are giving, is you're probably giving it begrudgingly. But, um, okay. So, it needs to be sacrificial. Each of us have to evaluate what that means. Um, but it means I'm giving something that goes beyond my comfort level. I'm giving something that means I'm trusting God for the future. And when we do that, there's great joy that comes. That's the whole thing, great joy. You might say, well, what do I get out of it? Well, for one thing, uh, you're, there are gonna be people that are lined up in heaven to greet you when you get there, Jesus said, because your giving helped them come to faith in Christ and that's why they're in heaven today. But also what you get in this lifetime is joy. It's a joyful thing to sacrifice, to evaluate, to look and, and from a heart level and say, you know, I know we could do that, but let's do this instead, let's give this. It's joyful. Now, it should be percentage-based also. And these are just three principles that we've come up with in our advisory team meetings um, as we've talked about giving there. That at this church, we want to say it needs to be sacrificial. It needs to be percentage-based. And the Old Testament, of course, it was all about percentages. And, and I think there's wisdom in that principle of percentage-based. 
But here in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, Apostle Paul says, on the first day of the week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will need to be made. In keeping with your income, that means proportionate to your income, that means a percentage-based offering. If all I do is pick a number, then I'm very likely going to gravitate towards picking that number at the end of my pay period, and I'm going to pick a number that is based upon what's left over. And it's probably not going to be sacrificial. But if I, if I pick a percentage, and I say, all right, and let's say this. Let's say someone is here, and you've never given. All right, even if you would say, yeah, I think I'm going to, I'm going to follow Abraham's example. I want to target giving 10%. You can't just start doing that tomorrow, I don't think, because you, you've, you've built up this track record of how you're handling your finances. What I would say is this, start giving 3% or 5% and do that for a few months and then increase it over time. You're going to see how God provides, but it's an overall picture thing. You have to, you have to change the attitude about money and finances in, in, a, in a broader way, but um, percentage-based is really fo- future-based, because if I just give a flat amount, then if my income increases, I'm, just, I'm still giving that flat amount. And, and what that means is I'm not expecting my income to increase. Percentage-based means, hey, you know what? When my income increases, I'm still going to give 10%, or I'm still going to give 12%, or I'm still going to give 5 or 6 or 8%, or whatever it might be, wherever you are in your progress of growth in your giving. And so... Percentage-based is, um, is, is a key thing. It's future-based. It's future thinking. It's believing God's going to bless. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8, we're just going to read the last sentence in this, okay? Jump to that last sentence. He says, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. Okay, that means when I'm giving sacrificially and I'm giving... Um, you know, in a percentage base, and as I'm going to say in a moment, consistent, I can be assured God's going to give me everything I need to keep ministry going, to keep my life going, to keep moving ahead, to keep focused on blessing other people. And so, if, do I believe that? So number three is give consistently. In the Old Testament, they, they were specific times they were supposed to give. And um, uh, like, for instance, a first fruits offering. And there are certain implications of a first fruits offering. For one thing, you don't know if there's going to be a second uh, harvest or not. And so you give out of that first harvest not knowing, are there a cloud of locusts coming? Is there going to be a big thunderstorm that's going to ruin my crops in a week or two weeks or a month? Am I going to have enough? Shouldn't I save all of this just to make sure that the harvest is really good at the end of the season? But when you give these first fruits offerings, what we're saying is, now, God, I'm trusting you with all of that. I'm trusting you with the future. I'm going to give this. And you know, another thing too, I remember my dad in, in his garden, seeing him at different times go to the middle of the tomato patch and pluck a ripe tomato off the vine and he just stand there and eat it like an apple. And if you've never eaten a tomato that way, right off the vine, it's really, really good. Can you imagine you've gone all winter long, you've eaten dried fruit, dried vegetables, you know, what, just think of gruel, whatever, whatever it was they were eating, it was probably the equivalent of what we would call gruel today. Oh, and finally, the tomatoes are ripe. 
And finally, you want to dig into that nice juicy tomato and you pluck it off the vine and you just, you want to eat that puppy. But instead you say, nah, this is God's. I'm giving this to God. And there's joy in that that you get when we do that. So uh, consistent in the New Testament, Paul, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 says, on the first day of every week, okay, already read this verse, let's just stop right there. On the first day of every week, Consistent giving is really important because it, and when we give, we give at the beginning, then what that's saying is that I'm trusting God for the rest. And the reason for them first day was really important was most of them were laborers. They just got paid the day before and they have a whole week now before they get paid again. And so again, it's a statement of complete trust in God as the one who's, who is um, my provider. And then as I've, as I've already shared, I believe the priority is this local church body that I've committed to, that I've comforted with, that we are pressing together to uh, complete the mission, God's mission in this world of making disciples, making disciples who make disciples. Now, Vineyard Northwest has a very rich history and heritage of giving. Many of you know this story. Some of you don't. We started the church in the spring of 2001. At that point in time, Lori and I both put applications in to drive school buses because we knew work a few hours in the morning, a few hours in the afternoon, would have the rest of the time to, to minister and to plant the church. We started the church. First meeting was in June. We met at a little church up here on, on Springdale Road called the Springdale Chapel, a Mennonite church. They're incredibly generous. They gave us their building on Sunday nights and would, would not receive anything for it. They just wanted to bless us. Saturday nights, sorry. So the church grew quickly. We gathered 100 people pretty quickly. And you know what? These were 100 people that were givers. And by the time it was time for Lori and I to, to, to decide, are we really going to go through with this bus driving thing, the church was able to pay us within like four, five, six months, which was an amazing thing. But it was, it was because those 100 people that came, they saw the vision, they saw the mission, and they said, this is worth the sacrifice. And, and we're, gonna, we're gonna make this thing happen. And so at the same time, a local business owner who was saved in the very first vineyard, uh, out of his business, he tithed. And he gave money to different churches in the area and we were one of the churches. He gave us $5,000 a month for the first two years. Now, I had real wise advisors around me, which I still do. But uh, one of them, John Green, said, that is too much for us to base our budget on. Because the guy's not even part of the church, so we can't really you know, base our budget on that huge chunk of our income. So let's save that for capital expenses. Okay, Let not, let's save that so we have a big cushion, but let's save that so when we need to buy property, we can do it. Well, what happened, uh, the church, we moved into the YMCA in the spring of 2002. Church grew, continued to grow. 2004, one Sunday morning at the beginning of 2004, place was packed to the gills. Everybody's worshiping and it's just live with life in the Holy Spirit's presence. And I'm looking at the whole thing and we had nowhere to go next. There was no other space we could use. The high schools here require 50% of your people to be from Northwest School District, and we didn't have that. There's nowhere to go. So I'm, I'm saying to God, what are we going to do? And, 
you know, I'm not like really honestly praying that. It's more like a desperation, worry prayer. And God spoke to me and said, test me. And two more times that day, those words broke into my mind, test me, just out of the blue. Shortly after that, this property came for sale. And because we had money in the bank, we were able to go and make a reasonable offer on it. And that's a whole 10-minute story there as to how we actually got this property. But we got this property, and we put together a facility team. And they, we hired a design-build firm we worked with, talked to some banks. We found one bank that said, well, you've only been in existence for four years. And PNC Bank was the only one that would even talk to us about a loan. But they said, you're going to have to come up with $500,000 to get a loan from us to build this building. And so we went through this whole giving campaign uh, to fund the building. And let me tell you, there's spiritual warfare with stuff like that. Shortly before the campaign opened, I think it was started in February, Lori came down with um, bronchitis, which turned into pneumonia, which when the pneumonia lessened, she came up with, a thing, developed a thing called laryngospasm, where your throat just shuts and you can't breathe. Pretty frightening. But um, at the same time, the very first morning, the first Sunday morning of this new giving campaign, we woke up to a freezing house because the propane company that was supposed to automatically fill our tanks was in the process of going bankrupt, and they didn't tell us that. But uh, they just didn't come and fill up our propane tank. So I spent the whole morning, rather than doing the final touches on my message, I spent that whole morning trying to get propane for us to heat the house. So there are all sorts of things like that that happen. But we came to a day that we called the day of first fruits offering. We had that at Fairfield Receptions. And the church was about 300 people at the time. We needed 500 grand. I woke up that morning, and in great faith, I looked at Lori across the table and said, we'll be lucky to get 200. <laughs> so we went, and we had our, our, our morning service, and they counted the money that was given. We got, okay, that's good. Uh, we got $775,000. in a one-day offering. In addition to that, I think it was close to 450,000 uh, pledged over a three-year period. And that's why this building's here. And all of us who are here, who were here, some, many of us were here then, some, some aren't, but we're all here because that group of people understood what it was to, to get their hearts aligned with the heart of God and with his mission for the world, and then to say, I want to be a part of that. And I am willing to sacrifice to be a part of that. And I mean, people gave land that we then sold. People gave family heirlooms. They gave jewelry. They just on and on. Of course, stocks and bonds and cash. But it was an amazing thing. And I just share that with you to say, this church has a rich heritage of giving. And even as you look around the room right now, you're, you just glance around the room, your eyes are falling on several people who give 
consistently in a sacrificial basis. And that's why we're here. And my, my, uh, my final word to you today is this, that Jesus said, I'll, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's what we're here for. That's who we are. That's what we're pressing into more and more. And that, that's what we're, we're just seeking God over. But wherever you are, in, in, in your whole attitude towards money or giving, mindset is crucial. Mindset's crucial. And first, give yourself and your heart to the Lord. And then give whatever he leads you to give. And then ask him, what's next, God? Okay, I did that. What's next? And, and I mentioned people that have an over, uh, not an overabundance, but an abundance of resources. And that's all, they, that's all they do, too. They just say, God, okay, I've got this. What do you want me to give from it? Yeah. And, and when my heart's aligned with God, boy, there are just wonderful things that happen yeah. and powerful things that happen. And so let's all, first of all, give our hearts to the Lord. And then beyond that, let's just ask him, what's next in my giving, God? So the worship team is going to come out now. We're going to go into worship. And um, just, just as, as we worship, just be communing with God and listening to God as he speaks to you. And, and let him nurture your heart because there's no better place to be than to have a good God-trusting attitude towards finances and, uh, and to be walking in that, whatever that means for you. So would you stand, please? And Father, we're so thankful for your goodness, thankful for your provision for us. And uh, we just, we, we want to honor you with our lives. So we give you our hearts. Give you our hearts, Lord.